Put it there, boy. We'll show these fascists what a couple of hillbillies can do. So, uh, my name is Charles Johnson. Um, I am a left-wing market anarchist. Um, I sort of work with uh, Alliance for Libertarian Left, Center for Stateless Society. Uh, I co-edited a book with Gary Chartier called Markets Not Capitalism, which is sort of intended as um, an introduction to left-wing market anarchist thought. Um, and so, yeah, I uh, study history and I study dead languages and I talk about sort of radical individualism. Sure. So there's a couple parts here to unpack. There's the market, so I mean, really, you could do three, right? There's the left, and there's the market, and there's the anarchism. Uh, but let's let's try and break it down this way. So um, market anarchism is going to be a view that um, favors um, sort of a fully consensual, stateless society. Uh, so when people hear the word anarchy, they often think of sort of riot or disorder. Um, and there's a reason for that. It's not because the word means it, means that, right? I mean, anarchy just um, means uh, sort of no, you know, I mean, it means sort of lawlessness or no authority. Um, that only means sort of social disorder or social breakdown or violence if you think that the only way to get social order is by means of social control, by means of sort of a state apparatus coercing people to um, sort of work and live together. Um, Market anarchists argue that this is just a false picture, um, that uh, what we're for is not uh, uh, what we're for is not sort of violence and disorder, but rather a consensual order, uh, an order that's not based in social control, but rather in sort of horizontal social relationships and voluntary cooperation uh, between people. Market anarchists in particular are radical individualists, so we have the view that sort of one of the paramount values in a stateless social order is going to be um, sort of individual liberty, right? So, so the principle is going to be that um, you have the right um, and you, you are sort of free to do anything that you want with your own person, with your own property, uh, so long as it doesn't infringe on the equal right of uh, anybody else to do the same with their person and their property. Um, from this, we envision a society um, without government, without state, without um, police or borders or prisons, um, in which interactions are um, contractual and consensual between um, sort of, you know, sort of based in people's voluntary agreements, um, their exercise of individual liberty, um, and sort of the practice of, um, uh, you know, sort of mutual interaction and socially accountable self-defense if necessary, um, not on the basis of sort of political organization or, or a state apparatus. Um, so that's sort of the market anarchism. Uh, part of things, or sort of the picture of it. Um, also, so it's market anarchism in particular because one of the individual liberties we think is important is the liberty of property and freedom of trade. Um, the left wing is going to shape a bit what we mean by that and how that looks. Um, and also, I'll talk talk about that in a moment. Um, but so, so the the kind of society we envision is one where people are um, 
uh, you know, sort of working for the fruits of their own labor, trading them amongst each other and sort of building contractual relationships, um, sort of free competition, entrepreneurial discovery, all these other features of the market form. Um, now, we identify as left-wing market anarchists in particular um, because, um, so one of the concerns in contemporary politics that you often have is when people start talking about markets, people instantly think of capitalism. They think of sort of corporate capitalism, um, sort of fortune, fortune 500 companies, economic production organized through giant sort of top-down structures with a boss at the top and a bunch of employees underneath who have to maintain their relationship with their corporate employer, with their landlord, um, with other sort of um, uh, people in the owning class in order for them to be able to make a living. Um, Left-wing market anarchists think that uh, the products of a fully freed market are actually going to look systematically completely different from this. So our model for what healthy markets look like is not so much like, you know, the, uh, so, so it's not like the New York stock market, right? Uh, it's like the farmer's market. So we have, we can, um, you can have a society with decentralized individual ownership where people are sort of trading back and forth with each other, um, but they are sort of making their lives and engaging in relationships um, uh, and going into mar sort of um, uh, marketplaces on a basis of relative equality with each other, where there's much more of an emphasis on um, uh, sort of. Uh, um, there's much more of an emphasis on sort of mutual horizontal relationships rather than big top-down firms where people sort of mostly own uh, the, um, the sort of the tools and means of production that, that they need to make a living for themselves sort of independently or cooperatively with fellow workers. Um, and where what you see is a lot, of, um, a lot of sort of decentralized structures very different from sort of concentrations of wealth and power in the hands of, of um, sort of a few corporations, like sort of Fortune 500 and bailout banks and others that are, um, you know, sort of presented as like the, the cornerstones of capitalism. Um, they're specifically completely dependent on state support, state bailouts, and state monopoly to maintain their, their position. Um, and so broadly left-wing market anarchists are going to be people who think that sort of social and economic goals associated with the left, um, things uh, like, you know, both sort of economic uh, greater economic equality, also like social and cultural liberation, emancipation, so um, support for gay liberation, uh, opposition to racism and to sexism, uh, support for environmental sustainability, um, and so on. These are all things that are um, important, like left-wing social and economic ends that can be achieved through radically libertarian means, through a stateless society and through social, grassroots social movements rather than through like sort of social legislation um, or kind of political control. So one of the one of the debates that sort of runs a lot between sort of you know within the libertarian within libertarian circles and especially when like left wing market anarchists are sort of arguing for the particular kinds of social ends that we're concerned about is a question about whether libertarianism is best understood as um, sort of a, a, a thinly specified commitment that's just about um, sort of very narrow, narrowly concerned with um, sort of individual liberty and size scope and power of the state. It's a rigorous application of the non-aggression principle, or whether libertarianism uh, is a thickly conceived commitment, which is um, uh, sort of based in anti-statism and based in concern for individual liberty, um, but where people who care about these things, right, who care about um, sort of individual liberty from coercion, um, 
thick, so people who advocate a thick conception of libertarianism argue that so the same reasons that libertarians have to care about um, individual liberty and to care about um, sort of trying to safeguard people's rights from invasion by the state are also reasons to care about a number of other, or you know, sort of also provide good reasons to care about a number of other things. So if you're concerned about um, sort of the, the dignity and liberty of individual people, um, it's often going to be, and sort of suspicious of state authority, one of the best reasons for this is because you sort of advocate a broad ethic of non-domination or sort of anti-authoritarianism. Um, and so our view is that there's sort of, there's a wide range of sort of cultural and economic issues that aren't just sort of answered by um, sort of a, a thin libertarian approach of, you know, let's get rid of the state and it'll take care of itself. Um, but rather where libertarians should, um, uh, where libertarians, for the reasons that they're libertarians, also have reasons to be concerned about these other sort of non-state forms of oppression or these sort of non-state non uh, issues. Um, uh, and so, you know, have good reasons to be concerned about bringing them about, um, you know, to sort of uh, combat racism, for example, um, obviously not by promoting government laws that would violate principles of non-aggression, um, but rather by, uh, in addition to working for principled non-aggression, also working through grassroots social means uh, to try and bring about a more just and equitable society. What I think is also foundational is uh, left market anarchist conception of property. Mm -hmm. um, can you talk a little bit about that? Uh, sure. Um, so uh, I don't know that I have too much interesting to say about it, all, all told. But um, so left wing market anarchists uh, advocate individual ownership of property. Um, typically, we are um, so you know we view sort of um, we view property ultimately as as sort of a function of labor rights that people work. Um, in order to uh, make a living, they voluntarily transact with each other and people are entitled to sort of the fruits of their own labor um, that are sort of produced through that. Um, Left-wing market anarchists, um, like sort of other market anarchists, stress that sort of the availability of individual ownership is going to be really crucial just to giving people um, sort of the, the best opportunity to make use of, you know, like tacit and local knowledge um, to interact with each other on sort of a basis of relative equality rather than dependence. Um, and uh, that sort of, um, um, uh, you know, sort of um, respect not, you know, respect for individual property rights is ultimately going to follow from respect for their person. If you're sort of, you know, if you're taking or destroying other people's stuff, that's in a way appropriating their labor um, in a way that is an exercise of domination over over other people. Um, so uh, like uh, many other um, leftists, left-wing market anarchists have uh, a great deal of concern over sort of whether patterns of ownership of property in a society look like something that's generally going to allow people to interact with each other in, in the marketplace more or less as equals or whether they're things that are going to create sort of large disparities in social um, power as they sort of come to negotiate with each other. Uh, but unlike state leftists and unlike anti-property uh, anarchists, left-wing market anarchists typically argue that these are, you know, um, sort of questions about disparity of power um, and sort of large-scale disparities of ownership are things that aren't best handled through a lot of sort of ex-ante restrictions 
on um, uh, ex-ante restrictions on like the kind of stuff or the amount of stuff that people can own. Rather, they're best handled not through like de jure limits, but through um, sort of the de facto dynamics. If people are fully free, and if everybody is fully free, so not just like a select class of capitalists um, who have sort of you know access to the police and access to the regulatory bureaucracy, access to licensing, um, but it, um, sort of under conditions of total economic freedom, that de facto the, the main effect of markets without bailouts and monopolies and, and uh, corporate welfare um, is a centrifugal effect on wealth and ownership. And so sort of um, uh, it provides resources for, you know, sort of um, most people and especially like working people and sort of traditionally socially marginalized people um, to uh, get uh, to sort of um, have their labor better respected, to get sort of you know, access to the advantages of property ownership in marketplaces. Um, and uh, so that sort of the, the issues, the issues of sort of large scale disparity are things that are, you know, partly aided by sort of getting the state out of the business of, you know, like bulldozing people's homes, for example, uh, or shutting down um, you know, shutting down people's um, uh, small hair braiding businesses or gypsy cabs or what have you. Um, but also that sort of free people are able to create, um, you know, grassroots mutual aid societies, um, labor organizations, other sort of civil society organizations where sort of workers, uh, sort of working people can um, sort of cooperate with each other um, and, uh, you know, sort of provide alternatives to like sort of very top-down corporate organization, um, and uh, thus, you know, as, as I was saying, sort of resolving resolving questions about disparity of ownership through like de facto mechanisms and grassroots organizing and direct action, rather than through some kind of ahead of time political scheme. Right. How does this concept of property play into the concept of borders? A lot of people will say. Mm -hmm. Well, if I can own my own property, then mm -hmm. the nation can delineate. You know, sure. if I can delineate between my house and my neighbor's house, then mm -hmm. the nation can delineate between our nation and the other mm -hmm. nation. What do you have to say to that? Right. So, so when people argue that the justification for border controls, in particular, is um, sort of something like a person's right to like police the entrance of their own house, I mean, that's that's such a weird metaphor, ultimately, right? Like. Um, People don't own countries. There's nobody who owns the entire continental expanse of the United States. And it's perfectly true that if someone, for whatever reason, has you know, sort of problems with Mexicans, doesn't want a Mexican in their house, there's nobody who's going to tell them that you, you, know, you, you have to sort of let people come in against your will. The open borders proposal is that, you, is that um, people, with, uh, people with sort of, you know, nativist sentiments about who they want on their land should stop telling other people who they can and can't have um, on, uh, on their property. So, you know, I have no, no problem at all with having immigrants for neighbors. I have no problem at all with um, sort of trading and, and working together with immigrants. And this is, um, you know, I mean, when, when um, uh, sort of people insist that, you know, like the, the nation is somehow our house, um, as if, uh, you know, sort of this uh, thousands and thousands of miles of, of expanse is something that um, is owned by the state and that has to be administered by the most belligerently anti-immigrant, most belligerently xenophobic uh, group of the people who live in it. 
they're attacking my neighbors and they're attacking um, my property and my, you know, sort of, uh, my relationships and my friends' and neighbors' relationships with each other. Um, uh, and so, so a radical respect for property rights uh, really specifically requires uh, complete commitment to open borders. Um, that uh, you know, the only relevant questions about access are uh, questions about whether you're welcome on the specific property that you're on, not like whether I took a vote with uh, sort of everybody else in the city to see if you can uh, you know, do your own work and make a living for yourself. So I don't think it's true that private property necessarily leads to environmental destruction. There is a, um, there's a, a bit of a, um, there's a bit of a step back that I want to take here to, to make sort of an issue clear, which is that, so the fact that market anarchists defend sort of private property and individual ownership does not by any means mean that market anarchists sort of willy-nilly um, stand up for the interests of anybody who has something the government calls their property. Right, and so like a classic example of this, um, uh, which I'll, I'll come around to some environmental examples in, in, in a sec, but the, one of the classic examples of this is um, sort of in debates over intellectual property. So government currently claims that copyright holders, patent holders, um, have a property right in the ideas that they put out, which allows them to restrict the free copying of you know, of published works um, or of products like pharmaceuticals and other kinds of research-based products. Um, even though those who, are, uh, those who are peacefully copying them or peacefully imitating them are not actually taking anything away from the person who claims to be the owner, right? So like if you write a poem and I make a copy of the poem, you didn't lose your copy. Um, there's two of them now instead of one and you're still able to use your copy just as much as you were before. The difference is now I can use my copy. Um, and so the fact that there's a, an artificial sort of law-created property claim doesn't mean that there's a genuine moral right to property here. Um, what we see actually is like a government-granted monopoly, one that uh, very heavily privileges like sort of, you know, almost all at the top of the Fortune 500 in particular, sort of uh, provides the, the, bus the business model for many of the largest and most powerful corporations, either their patent portfolios or copyright portfolios, and that also literally kills people because of patent, res patent restrictions in particular have killed um, millions of people around the world um, through artificial inflation of drug prices, especially HIV AIDS uh, drugs. Um, so this is one, uh, along, along, with, uh, along with closing of borders, um, it's actually one of the greatest humanitarian catastrophes that the state has imposed just within the last couple decades. Um, now, so let's take that and talk a bit about the environmental issue. So the fact that, for example, um, a, uh, a coal company came in to the hills and sort of, um, you know, managed to finagle a deal with the local government that, that says, like, they own a whole mountaintop, for example, which, you know, they never lived on, they haven't worked until they sort of brought the bulldozers in, um, and that has a lot of people sort of living around it and making use of natural resources like streams and um, the air quality and the soil quality and so on. Um, the fact that government says that the coal company owns it doesn't mean that this is actually, actually a genuine property claim rather than just sort of a privilege that's granted to the coal company politically. And so um, there are certainly, um, you know, sort of any society that has humans in it and building things is going to have live issues of environmental sustainability that we have to genuinely care about and try and 
addressed through grassroots means. But one of the core features of the environmental crises that we face today is typically that they deal with extraction of natural resources in an environment where corporations and government work closely together to monopolize the use of resources and to insulate sort of the extracting operation from um, uh, sort of the, the, the consequences or the costs that they're inflicting on everybody else around them. So with mountaintop removal we have uh, sort of destruction of communities through ruining their water sources, um, for example. Um, I used to live in, out in Las Vegas um, as part of a state that's about 75 to 80% owned by the federal government, right? And, and virtually all resource extraction issues in the state of Nevada have to do with um, Bureau of Land Management uh, or other branches of the federal government um, uh, sort of leasing out um, uh, natural gas and other natural resource extraction rights to mining operations. Um, and so the problem here is actually not, uh, not sort of small-scale individual ownership of property. It's not like ownership of natural resources. The problem is corporate ownership of natural resources and government ownership, um, especially uh, with sort of um, combined with sort of the, the, the incentives that that provides for them to make it available to irresponsible extractive industry. Uh, it's the same thing with a great deal of forest defense that, that um, sort of, you know, sort of the, the clear-cutting crisis of the 1980s and 1990s especially was driven by um, policies within national forests in particular, the subsi subsidies to, um, you know, they build, uh, build logging roads for logging corporations, literally like, like at, a, at a loss for what they were getting back, um, but because it's state ownership. Uh, they don't have any incentive to sort of um, uh, care about the costs that are being inflicted. That's somebody else's problem. What they care about is that they have a close political relationship with the major logging companies or with the mining companies in the southwest or with the um, uh, mountaintop, uh, mountaintop removal mining companies in, in Appalachia. Um, and so their political incentives all say, like, cut a deal with these guys. Um, you know. Uh, they'll help grease the wheels. When you get out, you may get a job with the company through sort of the standard revolving door. Um, and the, the, the one thing that could really help resolve this problem is to make the, um, uh, sort of make the corporations that are uh, claiming the privilege to extract natural resources from uh, these, these sensitive environments actually accountable to the other people whose sort of lives and livelihoods and land they're, they're wrecking rather than sort of um, uh, uh, allowing sort of anything that the federal government, BLM, will sign off on. Um, so the question is what the status of intellectual property is. And it's absolutely true that intellectual products take labor to produce. Um, and so advocates of intellectual property always just try and short circuit the argument there. So like, you know, it, I've worked really hard on this poem, so you can't just take that away from me. And I agree, I can't just grab your poem away from you. But if you read out your poem and I write it down, I haven't grabbed anything away from you. Um, so the, the claim is that um, uh, sort of ownership of intellectual property not only gives you sort of control over the disposition of your own voice, your own pen, your own paper, your own copies of the things that you produce, but that also it gives you a right of disposition and a right of veto um, and a right to sort of extract fees uh, from other people's voices, their pens, their uh, uh, 
sort of creativity and products, um, if in some way that's like contacted an idea of yours, even though, you know, so, so that can mean like direct duplication, right? So um, uh, copyright is, is asserted as a reason why you can't just sort of freely share uh, MP3 files of music over the internet. Um, uh, but it, it also, it goes far beyond that, right? So derivative works rights, for example, claim that if I write a story that makes use of a character that was in a story you wrote, or if I do something that doesn't duplicate but imitates or modifies something that you did, and so I add my own labor to it without taking away anything that you've got, um, they claim that, that you as the original uh, sort of copyright holder still have claims over me and still are able to uh, veto what I'm trying to do or demand that I pay you off in order to get rid of your veto. Um, and so it's portrayed as a way to, um, so I think, so like sort of basic labor-based or property, uh, sort of things that are derived on the claim that this is like literally a form of labor-based property are not gonna work at all simply because the sort of the non-scarcity, the non-rivalry of intellectual products, so the basic nature of copying is such that you're not actually losing any item of your labor that you ever had ownership of to begin with. It's just not how copying works. It doesn't destroy things. Like if I stole the copy of your book off your bookshelf, then of course that's a violation of property rights. Um, but that's not what, you know, sort of sharing an album or sharing a TV show on BitTorrent um, uh, is. I'm not taking it away from anybody in order to share it. Um, now, there are a number of other arguments that are made. So even if it's not like literally a form of labor-based property, and even if we're not literally talking about theft in the sense of like depriving you of something that you had owned before, you'll get a class of arguments, um, almost all of which come down to sort of incentive-based arguments. Um, and so you have the idea that if we don't have um, you know, copyright terms that last for 70 to 90 years after the death of the author, um, if we don't have patents that last for decades, you know, lock up drug, uh, new drug developments for decades and decades, that um, sort of we won't get enough stuff produced, like people who write songs or produce books uh, or who do like research into drugs won't be able to make a profit. They won't be able to sort of recoup the effort uh, if somebody jumps in and copies it. Um, and there's a number of problems with these arguments. Um, they tend to be fear-based rather than empirical. Like I just don't think there's very good evidence that the incentive problem they're pointing to exists. But I want to bracket that for a moment. Um, they're, they're also, they're just all of the, they're all within the class of protectionist arguments. This is specifically exactly the kind of protectionist arguments that um, libertarians and even most non-libertarians since sort of the fall of mercantilism have, uh, have very often like ridiculed. Um, and so, uh, you know, if the notion is that, um, uh, you know, the problem is that we're not going to have enough Justin Bieber songs because Justin Bieber can't uh, sort of recoup enough money from the effort that goes into to producing the song, well, there's going to be two questions. One is, how do you figure out how much is enough, right? I mean, every, I mean, um, it seems purely arbitrary to say that, that, you know, we have to have exactly the number of Justin Bieber songs we'll get if he keeps copyright until 90 years after, after his death. Um, when, you know, of course that means people will spend more money on Justin Bieber songs. Um, but there's no, you know, sort of spending more money on some particular song 
uh, writers' songs rather than on food or on apartments or cars or any number of other things that people spend money on is not guaranteed to be any kind of gain. Um, the, um, the other, but the other sort of point is just that um, even if you think it's obvious that the amount of an intellectual product that's produced isn't enough, like you want to, you know, so like you want to have life-saving drugs and you're worried that it's not going to be, enough of it isn't going to be produced by for-profit firms because they can't recoup the profits on their research. Well, then research will have to be done by not-for-profits, right? I mean, we have those. Universities do not-for-profit research. Um, uh, sort of researchers who want to make a name or a reputation for themselves do not-for-profit research. Um, and given sort of the overwhelming catastrophic humanitarian costs that are produced by locking up existing drugs for decades under patent restrictions, um, I think any kind of minimally humanitarian uh, approach to questions of intellectual property is going to have to acknowledge that um, uh, you know, I mean, patent restrictions kill people and um, sort of if the cost of not killing people right now in the world today is that um, university researchers have, have to figure out a way to work together with you know, work together better with uh, uh, pharmaceutical producers to get more basic research done on the not-for-profit side um, and products put out at low cost through generics, um, then that's just the cost of, of being a decent human being and addressing um, uh, uh, sort of addressing this uh, sort of massive invasion of property, you know, sort of massive invasion of, of rights of free competition that is having terrible effects throughout the world. Um, the, one of the chief things that I want to say, especially when people um, sort of really begin to learn a lot about uh, anarchist ideas and begin to learn about um, sort of the, the, you know, sort of the huge deformations that the state causes in our everyday lives, they get really excited about ideas of individual liberty and, and um, trying to bring about a healthier and freer society is that they immediately start thinking of how can I get involved like politically in order to do this? Like, who can I vote for? What kind of campaign can I jump in on? Um, and that's an understandable impulse because we've been sort of brought up in a society where you have sort of the civics textbook telling you that the way that you make social change is by producing political change and the way that you produce political change is by sort of voting for your favorite candidate and um, sort of pounding the table and arguing with people at Thanksgiving over who they're gonna vote for and um, sort of participating within the system of um, sort of official channel electoral politics. Um, and the, um, throughout the anarchist tradition, uh, anarchists from sort of all over the spectrum have, have really wanted to emphasize how much this is a fundamental mistake. And it's not surprising it's a fundamental mistake because you learn that from the civics textbook. The people who produce the civics textbook are part of the government system, right? They want you to um, uh, take it for granted that the, the best channels for trying to improve, um, uh, you know, sort of uh, um, improve sort of the social conditions that you're living in is by sort of jumping in on and participating within the realm of uh, political, sort of conventional political activism. Um, and that's, uh, that's just untrue. The, the, um, the way to make change is typically um, not by sort of uh, uh, starting out sort of on the system's terms and trying to get new candidates elected, but rather to um, 
work through forms of uh, uh, not sort of not sort of uh, political campaigning, but through forms of social activism that operate outside the system. Um, so efforts to uh, efforts just to talk with uh, other people around you about um, uh, about sort of issues that you care about or about anarchist ideas to try and raise awareness and um, uh, sort of aim at sort of cultural transformation. So, you know, we have sort of a long history here. And politicians are kind of like the, so, so you know, like one of the most transformative movements just within my lifetime in terms of, of effects has been in the United States has been the gay liberation movement. From, from the time that I was first growing up to now, um, uh, you know, there's just been a complete sea change in attitudes. When we talk about victories of uh, sort of uh, gay liberation activism, we often talk about the stuff that just happened recently. So we talk about like Supreme Court decisions on on gay marriage. We talk about um, uh, legis you know earlier than that sort of a wave of legislation on gay marriage and domestic partnership, or before that Supreme Court decisions against striking down sodomy laws. Um, and these are all really important developments, but they're not primarily developments that were brought about by electing better politicians. Um, Lawrence decision was was made under George W. Bush of all people. The uh, recent decision on gay marriage was made under Barack Obama, who is perceived as a uh, uh, you know, sort of elected as a pro-gay candidate, but wouldn't even sign on for gay marriage um, in 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 2008 when he was being voted for, right? Um, uh, and so politicians are really kind of the ultimate anti-hipsters, right? So like they they got into gay marriage way after it was cool. Um, and so what, what actually happened is that political changes like that, are in, when they come about, they're inevitably the product, they're sort of a, a, a lagging indicator, they're product of a long period of cultural transformation that ultimately makes it socially unsustainable for the state to go on trying to control people's lives uh, and to uh, 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 sort of inflict damage on people in the ways that it traditionally has. And so that came about through a process of um, uh, street demonstrations, of pride marches, of just individuals coming out. This was sort of one of the most powerful factors was just the movement to get uh, in for um, sort of uh, LGBT people to come out to their family and, and to talk openly about, um, you know, sort of our lives and our sexualities with uh, people who care about us. Um, and so the, the sea change in social attitudes that took place um, throughout the 80s and the 90s and into the aughts is what made it possible and ultimately what made it necessary for any kind of government policy change to happen. And something that doesn't happen through ballot boxes and doesn't happen through political parties, it happens through sort of social activism, through face-to-face -face interaction, um, through protest and through sort of um, just, you know, grassroots person-to-person interacting and organizing um, uh, in order to sort of uh, exercise, exercise pressure or allow people simply to work around um, and, and ultimately make irrelevant um, sort of the oppressive policies of the state.